You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to Mysteries and Histories with me, your host, Georgia Marie. This podcast audio is adapted from my YouTube channel. I wanted to make my content more accessible for those of you on the go, and we all love a podcast. So if I ever reference anything on screen or a photograph, please bear in mind that this audio was originally made for video. It won't hinder your listening experience at all, but just to save any confusion. And if you do want to go and subscribe to my channel, I'm just Georgia Marie over on YouTube. And with that, let's get into it. Hey guys and welcome back, or if you're new here, hi, welcome, my name is Georgia and on my platforms here on the internet I focus on unsolved true crime, missing people, murdered people, unidentified people, and today's case is going to be one of the latter. This is one of those rare cases in which the victim remains unidentified to this very day, but a trial for her murder did actually take place. Now the man accused of the murder was eventually found not guilty and the trial provided no further answers as to who the Bedgebury Forest woman as she came to be known might be and to this day it's one of the UK's most puzzling criminal cases. On Tuesday October 23rd 1979 a horse rider set off on a hack through Bedgebury Forest. Now this is a 2,600 acre forest in Kent here in England between sort of Tunbridge Wells and Hawkshurst. It's this area of outstanding natural beauty and being a horse rider myself I can only imagine it's a beautiful area to be able to ride in with plenty of these sort of interconnecting bridle paths and it was whilst on one of these paths in the wheel near Goudhurst that the rider came across a human body under some bracken and bracken's kind of this native British fern that you'll see all over our forests. Although the body was in the bracken it wasn't very well hidden like nobody had gone to any particular trouble to try and conceal the body to bury it to hide it they just sort of thrown it in the undergrowth. It was likely just more visible to the rider being higher up than your standard walker. The rider, of course, headed back to alert the authorities as soon as possible, thus beginning an unsolved mystery that stands to this very day, and an extensive murder inquiry. Jane Doe, as I'll refer to her throughout this video, was found to have been the victim of a brutal murder, and there was no chance that her death and subsequent body dumping was an accident. This was 100% a murder. Thanks to extensive facial and neck injuries, as well as other bodily injuries, it was very clear from early on that identification was going to be difficult. This was incredibly violent. Or, as the prosecution at the later trial would say, identification was just plain not possible. They weren't going to be able to do it. Or at least I should say they weren't going to be able to identify her through her features, through a photo. However, identification of the murder weapon was very easy because that was found very close to the body. Investigators found a blood-stained wooden stake. Now, I do wish I had more information on this wooden stake. I don't know if it was simply just a wooden stick that the murderer picked up in the woodland. I don't know if it was something the murderer happened to have on their person, but it is highly thought to be the murder weapon. Jane Doe's cause of death was blunt force trauma. 
They deduced that Jane Doe had been there for sort of up to five days before she was discovered, although it may well have been less than that. Although this was October, nearing the end of October, it was said to be dry and very unseasonably warm, which may have sped up decomposition. According to the Doe Network, Jane Doe was thought to be between 30 and 35 years old and this aging approximation was made through her teeth. Her molars were very worn down but she did have her wisdom teeth, both of which indicated that she would have been at least 30 years old. In general, Jane Doe's teeth were very badly decayed, like visibly so, members of the public would have been able to see and there was no evidence that she had ever gone to a dentist in her life. Due to this, and some other details that I will come to point out, it's been very strongly suspected that Jane Doe was very poor in life. She likely struggled for money. She was female, around five foot one with a thin build, and she had hazel or brown eyes. Her hair was dark brown, straight, and shoulder length, probably not dissimilar to mine. It's also worth noting at this point that the Doe Network page does state that she has been identified, but as far as I can find, this is a mistake. There is absolutely nothing online apart from this page suggesting that she has been identified. There's no news articles, nothing in the media. There are a few sources from the time that refer to the woman as Margaret, but we'll come back around to that later in the video. For all intents and purposes, Jane Doe is still unidentified. I don't know why the Doe Network page says any different. It's also noted on the Doe Network and in multiple other sources, the investigators have always been very sure that Jane Doe was of Eastern European descent. And I'm not sure how they are so sure of that. I don't know how they came to that, but that is what they say. She is Eastern European. An article on the Kent Online by Sean Axtell dated 8th of June 2022, so just last year, features a quote from DCI Neil Kimber of the Kent and Essex Serious Crime Directorate. He has said, The tragic death in Bedbury near Tunbridge Wells of an unidentified woman in October 1979 remains unsolved. The cold case team carries out periodic reviews of unsolved murders, rapes and other serious offences, and it's important to remember that no case is ever truly closed. To this day, Jane Doe remains in an unmarked grave in Hawkenbury Cemetery. So we can assume that she has not been identified. Due to the unidentifiable state of her face and the dead ends when it came to her teeth, seeing she likely never saw a dentist, they couldn't chase down any dentists, investigators knew from very early on that their best chance of identification here was likely to be her clothing, which was fairly recognisable. Jane Doe was found wearing black shoes, a black and white floral dress with a black polo neck jumper and yellow blouse layered over the top. And although it's not specifically spelled out in any of the articles I've read, the official sketch of her released by the investigation depicts her as wearing a white waist belt as well with this sort of like metal looking o-ring on the front, sort of she's wearing it over the top of the black polo. So I can only assume that she was also found wearing that, otherwise why would they depict it in the drawings of her? No handbag was found with the body, so that is all they had. The police stated at the time that the item most likely to lead to an identity here was the black and white floral dress, seeing as this was seemingly homemade, meaning it was probably one of a kind, and it was made using furniture fabric, not dressmaking fabric. It had likely been purchased by Jane Doe secondhand at a charity shop and it had been altered on at least two different occasions. It had been altered once at the hem and another time at the chest with extra darts being added. Jane Doe had a very small frame so it was likely a common occurrence for her that her clothes didn't fit very well and she had to get them altered either by herself or by a dressmaker. 
The situation around this dress being homemade or secondhand is another reason why, as investigators have said, she likely lived a very poor existence. About five years after Jane Doe's discovery, a DCI Peter Spittles went on to Crime Watch to help bring awareness to this case and hopefully find an identity. During the show, he urged the dressmaker, the person who had made this dress, whether it was a professional or just a home sewer, to come forward. Why they think Jane Doe must have bought the dress secondhand rather than make it herself, and why they assume a dressmaker did the alterations and not herself, is information that I simply do not have. I don't know why they're so sure that she didn't do this herself. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. However, it has been widely speculated that Jane Doe was a transient sex worker. Perhaps they think she wouldn't have had the means or access to materials to make such a dress. Maybe they didn't think she had access to a sewing machine. I don't really know. Another quote directly from the Kent Online article reads, it appeared the woman lived on society's peripheries, a transient, likely a sex worker, who would hitch along the M1 and M6 between London and the north of England. On top of all this information, it has been established that Jane Doe was likely not a smoker. Her lungs were clear from signs of smoking or pollution, with the latter meaning that she likely lived in a very rural area, aka she didn't live in London, nor in any other big city in the UK, or likely in Europe. Through stretch marks found in her stomach and other scarring found in her uterus, it has been speculated that she gave birth to a full-term child at some point. She may well have a child out there in the world who at this point could be in their 50s. And Jane Doe was also pregnant at the time of her death, although it was an ectopic pregnancy and likely would not have been viable or definitely would not have been viable. Jane Doe likely conceived this pregnancy about four to six weeks before her death, with a fertilised egg planting itself outside of the womb. In ectopic pregnancies, fertilised eggs usually implant themselves in the fallopian tubes, not always, but I do think that's the case in Jane Doe's case. As the egg then grows, the tube can rupture, causing severe internal bleeding, and if that's not treated quickly enough, it can lead to death. So Jane Doe appears to have been nearing that point in her pregnancy, the point of rupture, and evidence at the autopsy showed that she had likely been bleeding for at least two weeks, and along with that, also probably suffered some pretty severe pains. In the weeks after discovery, investigators did open up new lines of inquiry with hospitals and medical centres across the country, hoping to find out if any sort of doctor had treated any woman with her description with an ectopic pregnancy or just severe pain in her stomach. But no doctor or healthcare professional ever recalled meeting someone of her description. She may not have gone to the doctors with specifically ectopic pregnancy or anything pregnancy related. Perhaps she had suspected appendicitis or something similar. Her pains would have been focused on the right side of her tummy, so they likely would have thought appendicitis. And anyone who spent a lot of time with Jane Doe in these weeks would likely have noticed that she was very uncomfortable and in quite a bit of pain. I also want to point out here that the ectopic pregnancy was point blank not the cause of her death. She died via blunt force trauma. The fallopian tube had not yet burst, it didn't kill her. 
Although in saying that, maybe the pregnancy wasn't the cause of her death, but I wouldn't rule out entirely having something to do with it. I've seen people online wondering if they could do genetic testing on the fetus to maybe track down the father. And I do know that's something that has been done in more recent years. I don't know if it can be done in this case. This does go back to 1979. I don't know if they preserved the fetus, or actually at this point in pregnancy, four to six weeks, it would still be an embryo, wouldn't it? I don't know if they preserved that. I don't know if they left it inside her during the autopsy. I assume they did. I did give it a quick Google to see how early fetuses can be genetically tested. And of course, most answers just came up in regards to screening for genetic conditions and not paternal DNA testing. The general consensus there is that most genetic testing can happen at 10 weeks, although sometimes earlier. I don't really think that's relevant here though. I couldn't find the exact answer I was looking for. I don't know if they can do paternal genetic testing on this embryo, don't know. Despite a big poster campaign for public information, both across the UK and Europe, no one came forward with any information as to Jane Doe's identity or the identity of her killer. They did all the usual inquiries. They checked the missing people database daily. They went through social services, hospitals, doctors, Scotland Yard. They had nothing. The most information they were able to find in this case was through the pathologist. That's all they had. A year later, they actually reopened the case to have a look into whether maybe Jane Doe had been working locally at farms, but that was, of course, another dead end. I mean, she was a country girl, so her lungs said, from Eastern Europe, the likelihood is that she would have been doing farm work and there wouldn't be many records kept. Jane Doe doing farm work would have had very cheap lodgings, but also she wouldn't have been paid very much, hence her very poor lifestyle. Farm work is also quite a transient job, so if a woman just disappeared, just got up and packed her stuff and never came back, people wouldn't necessarily think to report it to the police. But anyway, like I said, that was another dead end. And then the case eventually went cold, but not for good. In October 1998, with developments in DNA technology, the case was officially reopened, with a task force in Grimsby and a cold case force in Kent, both taking another look at it. Turns out the police had unreleased material that they'd just been biding their time with, DNA evidence. At this time, the case was highlighted in the national media as one of very few that had been opened due to new DNA techniques, enabling DNA profiles to be gathered from much smaller samples than had previously been possible. They could now try and get a DNA profile from something as small as a single blood cell. This was huge for 1998. Through the end of 1998, the case gained a lot of traction. I mean, they even tried to make links to a second murder victim who would be found in Bedbury Forest in 1982, just a mile away from where Jane Doe had been found. And that was 46-year-old Jane Brooke, but nothing solid could be found. The new lines of inquiry also focused more on the movements of lorry drivers in the area and also still on tracing the dress. Investigators made inquiries in the Evesham area of Worcestershire after receiving intel that the dress may have been sold at a jumble sale in April 1978. But this, of course, would be another dead end. And then, very suddenly, in January 1999, a man called Harry Pennells was arrested for the murder of Jane Doe. Pennells was now 75 years old, which would have made him around 54 in 1979, and he was a retired lorry driver from East Sussex, although he would have been an active lorry driver at the time. He worked for Henley's Transport based in Goudhurst. It would transpire that Pennells had been a person of interest when the murder very first happened. He was first questioned during the original investigation. 
According to the Grimsby Telegraph, he was actually interviewed three times between 1979 and 1980, but he was never charged with anything until 1999. But why Harry Pennells? What drew investigators' attention to him in the first place? Well, a few days before Jane Doe was found dead in Bedbury Forest, a young hitchhiker bearing a very strong resemblance to her was said to have been seen in his cab, in his lorry cab. And then in the late 90s, DNA testing produced new forensic evidence linking him with the murder in the form of specks of blood found in his cab and in a sleeping bag inside the lorry. The blood was linked to Jane Doe with this new forensic analysis. It was her blood. It's probably worth throwing out here now that if the woman he picked up hitchhiking was truly Jane Doe, she was bleeding anyway due to the ectopic pregnancy. She was bleeding quite heavily. So this doesn't necessarily mean that she came to harm in the cab and that is what the defense would use. During his trial at Maidstone Crown Court in May 2000, Pennells would say that he did pick up a female hitchhiker at the service station on the M1 near Northampton on October 19th and she told him she wanted to go to Liverpool. The woman said her name was Margaret or Marjorie and she lived in Stepney in East London. And this is where the name Margaret came to the picture, as I mentioned previously, it's the name that a lot of media would start to call her. But of course, we have no way of knowing if this woman used her real name, like Margaret very much could have been an alias, or if Jane Doe is truly this same woman. The name Margaret really doesn't give us much, if anything. Pennell said that although Margaret originally wanted to head to Liverpool, she changed her mind and decided to travel to London with him. But then she changed her mind again, saying there was no point going back to Stepney because her landlady had gone to the seaside. So instead, she was gonna go to Devon to meet some friends so she could then travel up to Scotland with them. So she just asked to be dropped off anywhere in London so she could then get to Devon. Whoever this woman was, she definitely seemed to be a free spirit traveler. She just kind of did what she wanted. Pennell said that he actually dropped her off at the Dutch House pub on the A20 in Eltham in South London on October 20th. He said he did not pick her up for sex, nor did he ever see her again. However, the prosecution had a very different version of events. They alleged that Jane Doe had been picked up by Pennells in London on October 19th at Spitalfields Market. They said she was a sex worker. They then said that Pennells drove her up to Yorkshire before returning back down south and taking her into Bedbury Forest to kill her and then dump her body. The defence rebutted this by telling jury members that the prosecution's case relied on circumstantial evidence and their story had several holes in it, with no solid evidence to link Pennells with the scene of the murder. Nor did they have anything to suggest that Jane Doe had been in the cab on the date of the offence. The defence also produced witnesses, I think two witnesses, who saw a woman matching Jane Doe's description in Bedbury Forest on Sunday, October 21st, the day after the prosecution alleged the murder took place. They were very sure she was murdered on the 20th of October. In the end, the trial went on for four weeks and it took the jury just over an hour to return with a not guilty verdict. Pennells was free to go. It seems there has been a lot of discussion about this verdict online over the years, but what I'll say is this. Regardless of whether you think Harry Pennells was guilty or not, there was clearly insufficient evidence for a jury to convict. It does have to be beyond a reasonable doubt, after all. Jane Doe may well have been Margaret, the person that he said he picked up, but the blood in the cab doesn't mean much when she was bleeding profusely due to the ectopic pregnancy. She likely left blood everywhere she went. In a statement after the verdict, Pennell's solicitor Graham Reed said, 
Harry is relieved that what's been a 20 year ordeal is now over. He simply asks that his privacy is respected so he can return to his wife and family. He has maintained his innocence throughout and has fully cooperated with thorough police investigations in 1979 and 1980 and again in 1999. He has given evidence in court during this trial and a jury has found him unanimously he has given evidence in court during this trial and a jury has found him unanimously not guilty and he is grateful for that. A joint statement released after the verdict by Kent Police and the Crown Prosecution Service said, This was not the verdict we sought but we accept the decision of the court. We brought the case because we are satisfied there was sufficient evidence to charge Mr Pennells with murder even though 20 years had elapsed. The victim was owed that much. Advances in DNA testing and other new evidence has enabled us to bring the case to court following a major review of the unsolved murder in 1998. They also said that the case would remain open going forward, urging anyone to come forward with any information that might help name Jane Doe. This was 23 years ago now, and although the trial did bring the case back into public consciousness, Jane Doe remains unidentified to this day, June 20th, 2023. As I always like to point out in these cases, no one is truly invisible. There's always someone, even if it's not close friends or close family, there is someone who would notice if you went missing. Someone out there will have thought about Jane Doe since 1979, wondering what on earth happened to her, wondering where she is now. We might never get true justice for a murder, we don't know, but we could still get her a headstone with her name on. And in my eyes, that's equally as important. As I know I'll get comments about it, identifying the unidentified works very differently here in the UK than it does across the pond. Forensic genetic genealogy has not had the go-ahead here from our government, except for in the most extreme of circumstances, so that is simply not an option in this case. I won't rehash all the details of that, but if you do want to learn more about the government's reasoning behind that, for better or for worse, I don't really know, I would urge you to go and listen to my episode on the Sudbury Bag of Bones, where I go into it in a lot more detail. For now, investigators in the UK have to focus on familial DNA and our DNA database system, but we only have people who have been accused of crime in the database system, and familial DNA isn't all that helpful unless you've been able to identify a family member. And of course, all of this is further complicated by the fact that it is highly considered that Jane Doe may have been Eastern European. So if she does have a family, that could be where they are and that obviously complicates things. Jane Doe could have been anyone. Maybe she was a random victim of a senseless murder. Perhaps she was a sex worker who came across the wrong client that day. Maybe she was just a woman walking in the forest who came across the wrong person at the wrong time. Maybe her pregnancy had something to do with it, an affair with a married man who couldn't have got his mistress pregnant, so ended her life. This is all speculation, of course. Maybe we'll find out for sure once Jane Doe's been identified. Maybe we won't, but Jane Doe was someone. I assume we do still have her DNA profile available. I wonder if experts will be able to use that to pinpoint where she was from better. I don't really know. Whilst this case is still open, I'm not sure how sort of actively it's being worked on every day. If you have any information about the Bedbury Forest woman, you can contact Kent Police on 016-22-654-863 or Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111 or you can go onto their website to complete their online form. It's super easy. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for choosing to spend this time with me and with the Bedbury Forest woman who hopefully one day will have her true name. I will see you in the next one. Bye guys.